The Fids sorted their stores into two weatherproof caches, each a sufficient mix of food, fuel, equipment and materials that they could survive until their relief if the hut should burn down and either cache become unusable. The snow melter system provided 40 gallons of water a day, so long as someone kept the snow and ice going in the front end. A 90 gallon tank to absorb any heat that might otherwise try to escape through the insulation layers of the hut remained indoors, providing bulk water when needed. The occupants arranged themselves in bunks surrounding the main hut space so as to maximise convenience for themselves and their close quarter colleagues. Butler slept nearest the radio room. Slater arranged his bunk to house weather recording instruments, wired and plumbed to their external counterparts, to minimise the time spent outdoors in ventures to the Stevenson screen. Joyce lay next to the door to his workshop, his feet to the essay chimney. Each bunk formed a tiny window into the inner life and mean of the occupant. Some tidy, some muddle, all unique. Commander Bingham kept a small office to himself, and a smaller common lobby to one side of that housed the library, featuring novels and light reading, mixed in with scientific and technical manuals, and every Antarctic report or memoir that might hold useful insights or data for the Base E residents. A table formed the focus of the main room and served as workbench for projects other than those requiring workshop tools, and brought the party together for meals. A generator shed kept the noise and fire potential of the electrical supply separate to what the locals named Trapassi House. Ken Butler rigged a 24-volt battery circuit, powered by a windmill-driven dynamo as a supplement to the 220-volt alternating current provided by the generator, primarily on site to power his radios. The workshop featured its own anthracite stove, which heated water for the hydronic heating system that kept the modest greenhouse from freezing over, the double-glazed space receiving enough light and warmth to provide a small, sustained supply of freshies as respite from the preserved foods forming the bulk of the base E diet, and small crops of flowers to add colour as visual and emotional relief from the stark sterility of the surrounds. Members of Charcot's expeditions tried to grow cress under the light wells of their ships, and Elkem Mackenzie attempted some adventures in horticulture at Port Lockroy during the first year of Operation Tabarin, but I think Trapassi House provides the first account of successful gardening in Antarctica. Ted Bingham's wife sent him south with the makings of cheerful red checkered curtains, and John Tonkin made lampshades featuring tropical scenes with pictures cut from magazines. Red tablecloths replaced whatever projects took up space on the dining table through the afternoon, to make a clear distinction between work time and the convivial evening feed and whatever entertainments followed. Supper at 19.30 and all radio skids finished by 20.30. The AC power went off for the night to save fuel, and the 22-volt DC lighting kicked in. The battery bank received reprieve at 2200, and those still wishing to read resorted to candlelight. Pajamas and bedsheets marked another step away from the heroic era mean, which even the most ardent fan of the Antarctic pioneers would have to admit probably smelt pretty feculent, and I applaud that the FIDs strove to separate their working and their resting lives in this manner. With two-year stretches punctuated by long periods on trail, the norm for the FIDS personnel, the small nods to comfort and a delineation between on and off shift, 
must have been a real morale boost. Something I've not encountered in Antarctic memoirs before is the concept of arguments as a form of entertainment. The Fids were smart and, largely because of the war, well-travelled. Each could hold up their end of a conversation, and many an evening passed with good shows of reasoning and rhetoric standing in where normally you expect music, games, and theatrical shenanigans. I'm sure plenty of arguments happened at other bases, but Walton's is the first document I've read where members of an expedition looked to argument as an option in the entertainment schedule. Anyone who found a session becoming too heated could pop the safety valve with the remark, Has anyone read any good books recently? If that failed, John Tonkin could be relied on to reach for the emergency break. Let's change the subject. Let's talk about women. Women weren't a taboo subject, but with two years before anyone expected to see any women, the topic seemed fruitless and conversation invariably slid away from any attempt to make women the focus of attention. Everyone took their turn at the stove by rota, one week as chef, followed by nine as dining guest. The rotation prompted a competitive spirit, and the food never got dull as cooks sought to bring flair and imagination to the fore to top their colleagues' prior efforts. The obligatory phonograph received its regular workout as per previous expeditions, but John Tonkin brought a unique and amusing cache of material to play on it. The BBC recorded him singing bawdy songs for transmission into occupied territory as a means to authenticate radio instructions specific to his unit. No German counterintelligence operative could comprehend music hall, let alone counterfeit its tunes with Tonkin's particular cadence and timbre, while lending his pipes to a Paddy Ryan tune. So it was a safe bet any transmission arriving in company with I'm the man, the very fat man, who waters the workers' beer, was genuine. His copies of these classified recordings made regular appearances as Tonkin prepared to head outside to work his dogs, allowing his presence to linger in the hut and leading to occasional confusion over his whereabouts, which the puckish young man quite appreciated. The workshop provided space and machinery for larger projects than the dining table could support, and did double service of an evening. Quoting Walton, At night, the wash tub came down from its ceiling stowage, and it became the bathroom, where we could wash in peace, our toes roasting by the fire, and our backs scrubbed by some kind passerby. End quote. Every night was bath night for someone, the luxury being assigned by Rota. After washing themselves, the bather threw a handful of soap flakes into the tub and trod on their dirty clothes as though crushing wine grapes, hanging them to drain and dry before the workshop stove. Washing once every ten days is a lot more often than at most Antarctic bases of the era, and some in the present era. Leary of the Midden, near the East Base entrance, the residents of Trapassi House, collected food scraps and other rubbish, and deposited it daily on whatever sea ice lay near shore, setting the mode for Fids and Bass Hut waste disposal into the late 1980s, perhaps beyond. I'll need to ask some acquaintances from that era for further insight. The Bass were pretty slow to adopt social change in terms of women at their stations. Perhaps they were slow to bow to international pressure to at least try not to make too big a mess of Antarctica. A dog room set space aside for tracery and the preparation of dog meals, 
minimizing the fuggy odor of wet dog from encroaching too much on the human habitations. One thing missing from Trapassi House was a toilet. Stonington Island featured a perfectly functional two-seater lying between the British and American huts. The FIDs availed themselves of the facilities and didn't see any reason to construct another one given their low numbers and daily output reflective of that small contingent. As convivial as life in Trapassi House sounds when compared to many previous winter quarters and several subsequent ones, Walton assures his readers that the FIDs experienced hard days and times when the company of their fellow FIDs seemed irksome, and that's when the Huskies served the psychological role spoken of with such warmth by Peter Cleary in episode Tumpty Tum. Huskies made disgruntled FIDs feel welcome, and their judgment-free company relieved many a disgruntled punter, seeing them return to monkey company at least a little refreshed. Ted Bingham ran the base in much the same manner as a naval vessel, holding a dispersal meeting after breakfast each morning to detail tasks. One of the first non-cooking tasks to fall Kevin Walton's way was finding wood with which to fabricate missing sledge components, offloaded at Hope Bay in error. He eventually found some pitch pine lumber at East Base, pitch denoting the high load of resin in the wood fibres which give it longevity in uses such as boat building, railway sleepers, called railway ties in uncivilised nations that experience attempts at violent insurrection, and mine props. Not an ideal timber for sledge fabrication, but with the nearest forests lying 55 million years in the past, it was the best available, and Walton got to work, taking pride in this opportunity to ply his carpentry chops. Besides the pitch pine components Walton made, the Nansen sledges comprised hickory runners steamed to shape and treated with a combination of hot Stockholm tar and wax, and ash framing held together with lashings of rawhide lashings. An ash bumper protected the front end from impact damage. For navigation, a P10 deadbeat compass rode between the handlebars astern, and a footbrake between the runners offered a degree of control Elkie McKenzie lacked at Hope Bay during Tabarin, leading to the disintegration of their runaway sledge on the way back to Eagle House. A bicycle wheel sledge meter rode on an armature behind the ensemble. Seal hunting continued into the late autumn, fids regularly punting themselves about on ice pans in Back Bay, trying to get close enough to the seals basking on their own ice pans to kill and butcher them. But more often than not, the seals evaded the clubbing slowly bobbing their way by the simple expedient of slipping into the water, where their speed and manoeuvrability kept them out of reach of the ice-boyed monkeys. Dougie Mason and Kevin Walton spent almost a full month of workdays clearing the East Base workshop of ice. Someone left the door ajar some years prior, and blown snow that made it inside gradually consolidated into a dense layer of ice five feet deep. Clearing a space of that much ice would be a hard job, but they also needed to take care not to damage the machinery, tools and billiard table lying beneath. One of the East Base Huskies must have escaped the explosive dog lines after the last Curtis Condor flight departed Stonington Island in 1941, as a dog corpse turned up in the excavations. Once the stove came to light, they lit it and let the therms do the work, but it was still a slow process. The sewing machine survived its snow burial, but both generators' engine blocks cracked in the cold. 
Walton managed to patch one back to operating life by riveting a copper patch over the crack. Tools and consumables came to light as the floor slowly cleared, as did a number of articles removed from the BGLE hut. Training inexperienced dogs to harness kicked off once the hut was in shape, though the late freeze in Back Bay restricted the team runs to around the island and up the glacier foot. Bingham designed a staged program of exercises to gradually coalesce and train a team into as strong and coherent a unit as possible. An interesting dynamic Walton notes, and given he was one of the best dog drivers in the early year of the FIDS, I take him seriously on the matter, the pack leader didn't automatically make the best team leader. Sometimes placing a pack leader in the second slot served a team well because the pack leader wanted to catch up with the team leader and have a quiet word about dominance, and the team leader really didn't want to have that quiet word with the pack leader and did its utmost to put some distance between them. If the team leader usually the smartest dog with the best eyesight, got along well with the pack leader, then finding that dog's nemesis would serve similarly well. A finely balanced front pairing made a huge difference to the performance of a team, as the other dogs couldn't hold back and wait to see how the results of any fight might play out without receiving a heavy sledge up the rear, so highly motivated team leaders and their urgently trying to catch up seconds tended to receive plenty of horsepower from behind, though making such an arrangement stop was another matter. Puppies, once weaned, received the run of the island, growing strong off the back of well-planned feeding and the freedom to exercise themselves to exhaustion, arriving at adulthood with more Antarctic sense than if they'd been kept caged. At the five-month mark, they began their training to harness. The sun set in mid-May, slated to remain hidden until late July. Twilight provided five hours of flat, dull light spanning midday, allowing outdoors work, but only when weather permitted. By mid-June, the sea ice in Back Bay consolidated and thickened enough to support some sledging forays, and the first trips the dogs really stretched their legs on comprised visits to nearby islands to collect the carcasses of those seals killed by the crew of the Trapassi as they departed north. Bingham was a big rap for the use of ice chisels while working on sea ice, their use in his Greenland and BGLE experience preventing many a fall through ice too thin to work over. Hickory poles with mortising chisels attached to one end filled the niche. During the regular blizzards, the Fids only went outdoors to take met obs, to visit the outhouse and to feed the dogs perhaps not as cosy an existence as the Tabarinos experienced at Brantsfield House with its indoor ablutions and no dogs to care for. Feeding the dogs was a hardcore chore requiring at least an hour of graft. A seal carcass, excavated from whatever snow it lay under, was cut up with a cross-cut saw, axe work being too difficult in any sort of wind, as the windage of the axe head caused dangerously inaccurate aim issues. I love Walton's description of doling out the 50 or so frozen seal chunks in inclement weather. Quote, At each mound, as the sledge load of meat went on its round, a paw would come out and draw in the day's ration. The dog would be loath to uncurl himself from the protection of the hole in which he was buried. He would stick out a muzzle and pass a red tongue across his own nose by way of thank you, and it would not be long before his bushy tail would seal up the hole through which he had dragged his meat 
and it was time to feed the next dog, just visible ten yards away in the driving drift. The fact that the dogs didn't even get up really meant that it was blowing for, for them. The delight of anticipating the meal, leaping up and down, howling their heads off at the full extent of their chain, was nearly as great as the meal itself. Unquote. Such conditions revealed shortcomings in the door frames and window fitments of the hut. Slesser spending much time caulking gaps with twists of cotton wool in place of oakum. The wind-powered dynamo often sounded like an aircraft taking off, and the fires required damping down as the wind across the chimney tops caused a venturi effect with blast furnace outcomes. Willie Salter rigged a safety line to reach the Stevenson screen and find his way safely back in zero visibility. Midwinter's day saw everyone receive a day off, other than Walton, who was cook for that week. Robbie Slesser brought out what passes for treats in the eyes of a 1940s Brit recently returned from frontline fighting in foreign climes and isolated further south than anyone else on the planet. Corn on the cob, tinned chicken soup, Christmas pudding and mincemeat. Which sounds like it would comprise minced up meat, because that's what you call mincemeat, but which is, in British cuisine, if those words can be placed that close together without causing some sort of tear in the fabric of space-time, all the least exciting dried fruits mixed with brown sugar, liqueurs, and suet. I'd feed that to my children if they'd done something that warranted a punishment beyond sugar-free carob frogs, but in the cultural context of the time and the hut in question, that constituted celebratory fare. The coffee and biscuits were followed by hot rum punch and a sing-song, the huskies doing their best to drown out the humans. The dark months offered time to prepare and test trail equipment and stores. Scott-style polar pyramid tents were still the British go-to, the cotton fabric comprising the double walls being closer woven than in past iterations, but the design remaining otherwise unchanged. Rubberized ground sheets were an improvement over past canvas versions, and down-filled Arctic mummy sleeping bags, deriving from a US Army design, were a big improvement over the reindeer and wolfskin units of the heroic era, though reindeer hides did still serve as a layer of ground insulation and mattressing. Trail clothing largely comprised war surplus woolen base layers beneath windproof outers made of the same close-woven cotton as the tent walls. Debate about the merits of hard-soled boots, better for controlling skis or snowshoes, and the Labrador-sourced sealskin and caribou hide boots, last longer, require less maintenance, warmer for longer, never ran to completion. Walton likened using the sealskin boots over two pairs of quilted duffel slippers and three pairs of socks to walking about in boxing gloves, but rarely shied from the mode once he got accustomed to it. Everyone sported several pairs of gloves for different circumstances, silk aviator pairs for short periods requiring fine motor skills, chamois leather ones for tasks requiring less dexterity for slightly longer, and thick woolen pairs inside windproof mittens for sustained exposure in severe conditions, but providing no dexterity. Plywood ration boxes holding 20 days of trail food for one person at 4,400 calories a day contained Bovril brand pemmican, butter, powdered milk, quick oats, sugar, chocolate, high-fat biscuits, cocoa powder and pea flour. Orange juice concentrate was included in small quantities to keep the scurvy at bay.
Trail rations for the dogs comprised a pound of dog pemmican a day, dog pemmican featuring a higher fat quotient than the human version, and some chopped up maize to act as roughage. By the end of July, the dog teams were running well, and the Trapassi residents made a visit to the Debenhams and the BGLE hut on Barry Island where the hut in the Argentine Islands was cleared out on the BGLE's departure, the Barry Island hut gave an impression the owners might return at any minute, and with Bingham being one of those owners, I guess that's apt. The FIDs retrieved two steel-shod Greenland sledges for heavy-duty use near base. On the 21st of July, the sunlight reflected off a nearby mountain, and day by day, the lit area increased, until the sun shone directly on Stonington Island on the 26th. The sledging season neared. Colonial Office Directives required the FIDs at bases D and E focus their energy on surveying the eastern coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. So the first step required they cross the mountains, and that first step is a doozy. The published notes about the USASA traverse to the Waddell Sea offered hints but no specific guidance. So beyond the glacial airfield, the British sledges had to reinvent the path upward and eastward. Relays of dog teams worked to place three tonnes of stores at a plateau 5,000 feet above sea level by late October. Following a route scouted by Bingham, Sadler and Walton, the former an experienced sledger, and the two latter experienced mountaineers. The trio roped together to probe out crevasses ahead of each stage. The sledge parties following the scouting party plotted the course with compass and sledge meter and marked it with flags. Bingham forbade travelling on glacier surfaces in poor light or low visibility unless navigating along a known path. Walton caned himself for not calling out a mountaineering misstep on one occasion, not feeling confident enough to call out Bingham's leadership the more experienced man being at least a decade older than his companions, and growing to seem something of a father figure in the eyes of those he led. The trio found themselves on smooth ice in moccasins where their crampons should have been, and roped in together with no way for any member of the party to anchor the others. So if someone began sliding downhill or fell into a crevasse, the other two would quickly follow. Sometimes it takes more guts to put your hand up and say, No further, here's why than it does to just carry on in the face of the danger. Walton learnt from the incident. He notes it was the only nightmarish experience he had in his time on the trail, so either he spoke up next time he saw something amiss, or the party never experienced another dicey prospect. I think the former more likely. John Tonkin went down a crevasse in a stretch in the lower northeast glacier the Fids formerly thought they knew well and deemed crevasse-free. Walking ahead of his dogs in an attempt to curtail their regular gambits to head downhill to rejoin those left at base E, the snow beneath him gave way. Tonkin fell about 30 feet into the crack before wedging into the crevasse at chest level, his own weight making it hard to breathe, though this didn't prevent him making his displeasure known, the hard case shouting volubly. Looped ropes lowered and passed under his arms prevented his slipping any further down. Bingham and Mason lowered Walton into the hole and he chipped at the ice walls with the spike taken from the bottom of his ice axe, at first to make enough space to get close to his companion and then to release Tonkin from the pinch point. 
It took three hours of chipping work before those at the surface could lift out their colleagues. Walton later recorded it was Tonkin's optimism in the face of his own constricted breathing that kept him chipping at the ice in the face of exhaustion and his despair at the apparent hopelessness of the situation, and the pathetic contrast it cast against everything Tonkin already survived in the war. Recovering back at Trapassi House, everyone assumed the numbness in John Tonkin's hands and feet would ease with gradual warming, but his hands remained deadened and poorly coordinated, the ropes under his arms having squeezed the brachial arteries and the resulting poor blood supply nearly killed the limbs off. It took six months for Tonkin's hands to recover full feeling and dexterity, daily tipping out a box of small screws, nuts and bolts and picking up the articles one by one served as John Tonkin's physiotherapy and occupational therapy in one. The injuries he received in the incident poked his chances of going on the long trail forays in the coming summer. Reg Freeman took his place in the field parties, and Commander Bingham issued standing orders that skiers be roped into their sledges at all time while working on glacial terrain. Reg Freeman replaced John Tonkin in the trail party, and the sledges headed out again two days after the crevasse accident trying to scout a northern route to the plateau, but they found nothing promising. The weather turned against them. For a day and a half, the fumigator blew hard, forcing the team to climb out of their tents every two hours to cut new snow blocks to hold down the tent valance. The ablative power of the wind, gusting to an estimated 100 knots, left the tents sitting proud on pedestals of snow, increasingly in danger of the wind getting under them enough to carry them and their contents away wholesale. When the fumigator ceased, suddenly, as was its mode, they broke camp and made all speed back to base across the newly sculptured landscape of Sestrugi. Northeast Glacier was the only option. The 1 to 2.5 gradient slope beyond the 3,000 foot mark up the Northeast Glacier received the official name Soderbred Slope, but this was the euphemistic version. In light of the difficulties experienced traversing it, and John Tonkin's unfortunate disappearance into it, the colloquial form, Sodomy Slope, held sway in local parlance, because of its ability to fuck you in the ass if you weren't careful. And before anyone writes in with a, well, actually, I know that sodomy is, in a legal sense, any sex other than P and the V, but in British vernacular of the era, it was a bumming. Sodomy slope required the use of a pulley system to move materials uphill. A dog team went up with an unladen sledge and roped into a line running over a pulley attached to a dead man buried deep in the snow, the rope's other end being tied to the centre trace of another dog team lower down the slope. This lower dog team towed a loaded sledge uphill, aided by the pulling power of those headed downhill, the rope they towed after them giving the uphill mob the boost necessary to overcome the gradient. This system worked well once the dog drivers worked out how to circumvent the fights that broke out as the two dog teams converged at the halfway mark. Extensive use of the butt of the stock whips and loud, repeated verbal cues eventually did the trick. While out on the depot trail, one of Robbie Slesser's bitches went into labour, unexpected as no one even noticed her going into heat nine weeks earlier. The men built a snow igloo and each donated an article of clothing for Tutluk to give birth in. While the Fids returned to relaying the next load uphill, she tore the donated clothing to shreds and distributed the shreds about the campsite, 
tore an entrance into one of the tents and whelped a single large male pup in the foot of Reg Freeman's sleeping bag. When the weather allowed, the FIDs listened to the BBC World Service in the evenings, the Nuremberg war crimes trials holding their attention the most and leading to long speculative discussions about what the outcomes might mean to the future of the world. It's sometimes odd to think about the outside world intruding into Antarctica, even in the present day of satellite communications and internet connectivity at the pole, but a loss of signal can cause as much upset as bad news, and the FIDs became concerned when Base B ceased transmitting in September. But more on that later. The depot phase featured many long stretches tent-bound, waiting out blizzards lasting as long as 10 days. The sledges passed the time reading and rereading the four books they brought with them, writing letters and playing games on paper, the wind gusting too loud for conversation. The final boxes went into the plateau cache on the 26th of October. The downhill return journey to Stonington Island took only seven hours. The cached materials gave scope for summer trail parties to reach far further into the peninsula and offered a safety margin for parties returning later than expected. Above all else, getting the depot depoted brought the sledging teams into well-practiced sledging fitness. The six puppies the trail party left behind were almost fully grown and halfway trained to harness when the sledges returned to the island. The hut received linoleum flooring in their absence, and most of the drafty cracks around the windows and doors were corked effectively. The greenhouse responded to the lengthening days by supplying crops of freshies and flowers. How's the conviviality? Bingham announced the summer sledging program shortly after the return. Seven sledges heading to the plateau depot, and from there, breaking into two parties. Bingham, Freeman and Walton heading northwest, and Slesser, Sadler, Joyce and Dougie Mason heading northeast. After reaching the depot, but before the party split off, Bingham wrecked his back. Doc Slesser made his assessment. The commander needed to return to Stonington Island before the injury worsened. Reg Freeman and Kevin Walton returned with him, their sledging season cut short. Signs of summer showed about the island. Dents along the ice shoreline where seals hauled out and rolled about in their own feces for a few hours the lowered albedo speeding the melt. Tools dropped in the autumn reappeared from beneath the snow. Small melt streams formed. Dogs rolled in resurfacing lumps of rancid blubber and ruined their coats, requiring extensive brushing out. Empty petrol drums served to melt water in the returning sunlight. Painted black, they absorbed enough heat to turn snow into 100 gallons of water a day cutting the daily fuel use in the hut by a large fraction. The east-based buildings began to leak as the melting snow made its way past the canvas waterproofing applied to their exteriors, several Antarctic winters having ablated away a lot of their integrity. Stores stored in the American workshop were sledged back across the hill and cached outside Trapassi House. Penguins returned to Marguerite Bay and mostly stayed outside the dogs by standing just beyond the worked ground near the stakes, inspecting the baying, lunging brutes and giving them an occasional flipper-thwack across the snout. One of John Tonkin's team, Lizzie, 
worked out to play it cool and wait until the penguin came within reach before showing any interest. Scoring a spot from the all-sealed diet for a couple of days, the penguin remembered only as a red smear on the snow and some feathery dog crap the following day. Walton recounts this period as a sunny idyll. With only six on base, the cooking rotor came each fid's way more often, but required less effort. Dining becoming sporadic and less formal. Work about base continued, but required less energy and effort in summer than in winter, and the less structured days blended into one another. The BBC regularly called on to provide an accurate fix on the date. It was from the BBC that the Base E residents first heard about Finn Ronnie's expedition heading for Stonington Island and expected to arrive there in early February. Kevin Walton, while sweeping out the East Base accommodation block, contemplated the Americans' arrival with interest. Everywhere the Americans turned up in the preceding five years, they'd arrived with the latest in technology and techniques and large volumes of consumables of a standard to make soldiers of every other Allied nation envious. Walton anticipated the FID's sledges and sledging mode being relegated to the past by whatever trail wonders were heading south at that very moment. Line up the sad trombone for the episode recounting the Port of Beaumont's arrival, because he's going to be surprised. Life slowed to a glacial pace as Christmas passed uncelebrated. The Stonington-bound FIDs awaiting the return of their trail companions before breaking out the mincemeat and chicken soup once more. Boxing Day passed with no tasks but the routine ones, and the FIDs spent most of the day on the hut roof, sunbaking in the still air. I'm going to guess that they were actually sunburning. I know enough folks from the UK to understand that at the first sign of sunshine and temperatures above freezing, they'll disrobe to their scuds and a string vest and spend several hours turning a lobster red so vibrant even my crappy colour vision can register it, and then spend the remaining hours of that day and the following one swathed in calamine lotion and moaning quietly as ecdysis takes hold, the final phase of the process leaving them slightly more pale than they started, borderline translucent in some cases. The ozone hole didn't exist over Antarctica in 1946, but with enough hours of sunlight and still air, I'm sure they managed to stave off the rickets with a really good reddening. The Antarctic Swimming Club, dormant since the days of the BGLE, received two new members when Ken Butler stood astride a crack in the sea ice awaiting a seal he hoped would resurface, and Willie Salter tried to go to his aid, but ended up just going to him, both men floundering back ashore more excited about getting indoors and changing their clothes than they were about their new club membership status. Fishing became the fashion, and Piscine nightmare fuel arose from the depths, but even the ugliest fish looks like every other fish when filleted and these things were eaten cold with salad greens arising from the hothouse. Convivial as all get out. As 1946 came to an end, the Trapassi House residents let the fires go out in the workshop and the dining room. The ambient summer temperatures, sufficient for hut life, sustained only by the Essie in the kitchen. On the 8th of January 1947, the trail party returned, fit, sunburnt, and short two dogs, Wolf and Razzle, having played truant at two-ton depot. This explained Razzle turning up at Stonington Island, looking well-fed in early December. But whatever became of Wolf? Slessor's sledges pushed on from the depot, at which their colleagues turned back, but only achieved one day of travel for every four spent laid up, 
covering 300 miles in reaching and returning from just north of what Wilkins named the Crane Channel, which wasn't a channel. The FIDs were still feeling their way with the long-distance dog driving, but the mode and the mean were coming into focus. Even on days when the wind let up, the visibility rarely afforded opportunities to survey, the main reason for the foray. Joyce returned with scant rocks in his collection, the path taken bringing him few opportunities to examine exposed geology. The Base E FIDs celebrated Christmas on the 11th of January, and it was over the borderline explosive Christmas pudding, overlaced with rum by enthusiastic Cook's helpers, announced his imminent departure from Stonington Island. His back wasn't on the mend and required attention Dr. Slesser couldn't provide at Base E. Bingham asked John Tonkin to take his place as leader, but Tonkin asked that he be made 2IC, figuring his space in the hut dynamic better suited to buffering problems he foresaw in a second year on site without Bingham's guidance. Ken Butler became leader on the commander's departure. Bingham put a lot of energy into training his charges into the best practices he knew for operating in their environs, and felt confident they would thrive in his absence. Kevin Walton notes that the base E FIDs, and FIDs generally, owed a tremendous debt to Commander Ted Bingham, whose passion for huskies and experience as a sledger set up those staying on after and arriving subsequent to Bingham's departure very well for success on the trail. The Second World War saw many of those under his direct leadership prepared for and accustomed to taking on more than their usual swathe of responsibilities and duties, and Commander Bingham faced a hard road getting his charges to slow down and learn procedures from first principles, rather than winging it and seeing what happened. In his second year at Base E, a period of far longer trail journeys, Kevin Walton realised the value of the one trait he'd found irksome in his former leader, as he and his colleagues knew their stuff from the ground up based on Commander Bingham's insistence they take their time on the basics before building up to the syntheses. I'm going to leave the Base E residents there for the moment. Walton's narrative serves well to set the scene for what the rear is about to encounter as the Port of Beaumont made its way south, so I'll turn some attention to the FID's other bases to round out this episode. I don't have the time and resources to chase up the same level of detail as I drew out of Kevin Walton's book, but I've never claimed I was going to buy, read, internalise and, and synthesise every piece of Antarctic literature for this series. I'd like to, but I don't have the time or the money. Vic Russell set to training the Hope Bay dog teams in expectation of more ambitious sledging than the residents of Eagle House managed the previous year. The Tabarinos, lacking experienced animals on either end of the traces. As a shakedown trip, he deposited Natural History Museum geologist Bill Croft and assistant geologist Dick Wallen at the Nays on the shores of James Ross Island to expand on the fossil collection Elke McKenzie began collecting from there the previous summer. With their sledging mode knocked into shape, Russell led John Francis, Dr Jimmy Andrew, and Tom O'Sullivan over slushy sea ice to begin reconnaissance and surveying over the Trinity Peninsula, close to home, but as yet an unknown quantity. Blizzards kept progress slow and minimised surveying returns, but they found a promising looking path that might lead to the western shore of the peninsula, 
and demonstrated that the Russell East Glacier provided a route back to Hope Bay if the ice in the Prince Gustav Channel ever blew out entirely. Food ran short, with men and dogs on half rations 35 days out and still some way from home. The deadline for collecting Croft and Wallen from James Russell Island passed while the Peninsula Party still lay 15 miles from Eagle House, camped on slushy sea ice, the dogs receiving their last pemmican. Heavy drift snow saw them lying up, but the weight of accumulating snow pressed the sea ice surface below sea level. Their tent awash, O'Sullivan and Andrew moved in with Russell and Francis, the four taking turns in the two dry sleeping bags. With the blizzard still in full force, morning light revealed the abandoned tent half buried, the associated sledge frame underwater, and one of the huskies dead, suffocated under the heavy drift. Trying to dig the sledge out proved fruitless as the wind-borne snow filled whatever gap the spade made. They elevated the other sledge above its less dramatic drubbing and struck the livable tent as the seawater gained further ground on the camp. Erecting the tent in such strong winds saw one of the poles break, but it still provided enough support to make a survivable billet for the four men. After another miserable night of blizzard noise and hunger, Russell opted to dash across Goose Bay, hoping to reach Eagle House without losing any more dogs to the conditions. The strongest pulling dogs went into a single team to pull the emerged sled, and the others were allowed to run free. They reached the far side of Deuce Bay that evening and camped up, the dogs unfed and the men finishing their last morsels. They reached Hope Bay the following day, a near-run race as one of the dogs rode the sledge, usually a precursor to death and parceling out among the canine kin. The dogs received as much seal as they could eat as the relieved men tethered them on their lines and turned in to the luxuries on offer in Eagle House. They felt doubly relieved when Croft and Wallen turned up three days later, possessing the sense to haul themselves home once the deadline for their Uber passed, though their specimens remained on site at the Nays. The sledges spent a week recuperating and re-swapped out O'Sullivan, suffering frostbite in his hand, before heading out again in late April. The coming winter saw ice surfaces improved for sledging and more stable weather led to fewer days laid up. The trail party split, two men making a detour to collect the fossils at the Nays, while the other two continued to swamp camp to recover the abandoned tent and sledge. While camped at swamp camp, one of the bitches, Pretty, put up a lot of noise. Knowing she neared the end of a pregnancy, Russell turned out to take her off the lines and to find her some shelter and privacy for whelping. Pretty already took care of the matter, having slipped her tether and trotted into the tent as Russell departed, lying atop his sleeping bag when he returned. He turned her out. She chewed her way back in, destroying the inner and outer walls of the entrance sleeve and plonking herself back at the foot of Russell's bag, the monkey curling up to give her room, resigned to bend to a will greater than his own. She whelped six pups and received a share of Russell's breakfast for her troubles, and rode back to base in a nest the men made among the sledging tanks while her brood suckled. What's that meme where someone makes a gif of an otherwise innocent entity donning 8-bit sunglasses and looking all hard as nails? That, but for pretty, and in audio form. 
In July, with O'Sullivan's hands recovered without any loss in digital fidelity, he headed to Seymour Island for further fossil fossicking with Croft, the pair accepting that any blowout of sea ice might see them stranded at their site until the following summer's relief ships could reach them, figuring that if the Swedes and Norwegians could survive as long as they did on penguins in the same district 40 years earlier, they should be sweet. This fossil foray turned up more giant penguin bones from the site at which the extinct species first came to light during Nordenhweld's expedition. At the same time, Russell led Andrew, Francis and Wallen back up the Russell East Glacier to further examine the Trinity Peninsula and map paths to the west. Four days out, Doc Andrew broke a rib, though he didn't know how. He tried pressing on, but found the pain too great. Russell led him back to Hope Bay, returning with Reese in his stead. Six weeks out, Wallen broke an arm in a sledge rollover, but either didn't realise how bad the injury really was, or felt too much of a burden to pull the pin on the foray for the sake of his pain. Wallen carried on a further four weeks, at which point the pain overwhelmed him. His companions diagnosed rheumatism and set him riding the sledge for the next nine days as they made their way back to Hope Bay. Doc Andrew identified the fracture as a fracture, but by that time it was knitting itself back together effectively, making further treatment moot. Hard case, Wallen. Their trek reached south to unknown mountains along the spine of the peninsula. Among the features, the most important discoveries of the foray demonstrated Cape Ligupil as the only mainland landing on the northwestern coast of the Antarctic Peninsula, offering access to the interior. The headland was named after Ernest Goupil, artist with Dumont de Ville's expedition, who died during their voyaging. The party returned via Mount Bransfield, the round trip amounting to 472 miles. The fids were hitting their sledging straps. Andrew injured himself again shortly after the sledge's return, walking into the whirling propeller of the Eagle House wind generator. The prop blades shattered under the stresses placed on them by the doctor's scone, but Andrew took hits in his turn, a deep gash on his head requiring stitches from O'Sullivan, receiving instruction in the unfamiliar task as his patient drifted back and forth across the borders of consciousness. A final sledging foray saw Russell lead Francis, Reese, and O'Sullivan over slushy ice in the Prince Gustav Channel to seek a path to the interior south of the Russell East Glacier. Hard going in the mid-December heat, poor sledging surfaces and meltwater pools making travel and camping on the sea ice difficult, but they climbed the Aitken Head Glacier, kicking their goal. An attempt to head south along the spine of the peninsula on a narrow zigzag path along a mile-wide ridge of ice got cut short by a message from Ted Bingham. Expect relief ship during third week of January. The weather gave them a break on the return leg, and the team managed some impressive distances, the final 24 hours on the trail yielding 57 miles. The Trapassi, under the command of Captain Eugene Burden, returned to Port Stanley in November 1946, carrying James Wordy and David James among its complement, and a civilian-registered Oster Autocrat aircraft, a three-seat touring version of the wartime Oster Aerial Observation Post Artillery Spotting and Army Liaison Airframe, slated for use at Base E. 
From Stanley, the Trapassi headed to Deception Island to relieve the four Base B residents. Finding the radio shed and adjacent accommodation building burnt so thoroughly that the residents occupying less auspicious digs in the increasingly derelict buildings of the former Hectoria Whaling Company station couldn't contact the outside world, explaining the disquieting quiet radiating out of Deception Island that the Base E contingent noted in September. The Trapassi restocked Deception Island before crossing Bransfield Strait. John Huckle, a naval officer appointed as FID's liaison by Miles Clifford, established a temporary base of operations in Admiralty Bay on King George Island, applying timber drawn from Deception Island and depositing personnel whose names and numbers elude me for the Austral summer. The Fitzroy, captained by Freddie White, carried James Wordy south for the first time since he departed Elephant Island aboard the Yelcho 30 years earlier. They headed for Cape Geddes on Laurie Island. Meteorologist Choice and his three colleagues, after a year in close company and cut off from the world by a balked radio generator, all volunteered to stay on for another year. This laudable dedication to occupying space in the South Orkneys proved unnecessary as the FIDs abandoned the small base at Cape Geddes, deeming it too difficult to supply given its steep shoreline and unprotected approaches, replacing it with a presence at Sydney Island. Three men began their meteorological vigil at Factory Bay, near a former whaling station, under the leadership of Australian physicist Gordon Robin, slated for a lot of attention in coming episodes of Ice Coffee, and eventually to become the longest-serving director of the Scott Polar Institute. Some of Robin's equipment for a proposed series of radar experiments never went ashore, nixing his original program, but he applied himself to other scientific avenues. Passing Elephant Island en route to Hope Bay, Captain White offered to land Wordy at Cape Wild, but the scientist felt the time pressure precluded such nostalgic wallowing. Could also be he didn't feel like revisiting a site of such miserable memories. Not everyone wets their pants to stand where Shackleton stood. Choice shifted to Hope Bay for another year of Met Obs, and Frank Elliott replaced Russell as base leader. Ray Aidy, South African geologist with a South African government mandate to learn the Antarctic ropes in order to lead a South African expedition, joined them at Eagle House. Visiting Port Lockroy, the Fitzroy put ashore David James, leading a two-member film unit from Ealing Studios, gathering footage for Scott of the Antarctic, working out of Bransfield House, while the cast worked their end of the project in Norway and Switzerland. On completion of cinematography for Scott of the Antarctic, Bransfield House was mothballed, its residents repositioning to the Argentine Islands, a new FIDS presence at a former BGLE site, though of the former hut on Winter Island they found no sign. They thought possibly a wave propagated by a major ice carving event washed the entirety away, but the dory still lay where the previous summer's visitors left it, moored up by a light painter line, seeding suspicions. Quote, an act of God under suspicious circumstances came the verdict, unquote, with many dark thoughts going the way of Patagonian naval visitors. Soon enough, 
an assessment of the preceding year's accumulated data suggested a tsunami propagating out of the Aleutians. The event registered at Port Lockroy as an anomalously high tide on the 2nd of April 1946, which likely swept the hut away, the boat remaining afloat at its mooring and settling back to ground as the waters receded, while the hut, less well-anchored and less seaworthy, didn't hold up to the inundation and currents. The Trapassi's complement began erecting what would come to be known as Wordy House, Base F, using the last of the timber from Deception Island, and more drawn from the stores at Port Lockroy, Frank Elliott taking temporary charge. Kevin Walton's first officer from his time aboard HMS Relentless, Dick Bird, spelt B-U-R-D, felt inspired to find his way south when his second officer took his leave of their ship in the Red Sea a year prior, and took over leadership at the site from Elliot for the coming winter. As the snow melted through the course of the summer, bits of the BGLE hut showed up well above the reach of the spring high tides around Skewer Island, confirming the Aleutian tsunami as responsible for the hut's absence. When I ran an internet search for Dick Bird with that spelling, combined with Argentine Islands, one of the first returns led to an article on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's science page citing a 2001 report in Nature, noting that researchers at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, discovered the male Argentine lake duck possesses a penis as long as its own body, the largest penis-to-body length ratio known in all the birds, being as much as 43 centimetres long, and brushed-tipped to aid in removing the sperm of pesky competitor male ducks from the cloaca of females unlucky enough to receive their rapey attention. Aggressive, non-casual sex among ducks is common knowledge among most biologists, but in case you didn't know, male ducks are the worst and can go fuck themselves with their waterproof, corkscrew-shaped dicks. The Argentine lake duck especially. You never know when my digressions will strike or where they might take you. Today, it was into the sordid world of aggressive, well-endowed duck sex. Initially, I couldn't find much information about the British iteration of Dick Bird, but I assumed he was a better person than the American one, only later finding out that his real name was Oliver, rather than the expected Richard. Dickie being a nickname often attached to people with the surname Bird, whether their first name was Richard or not and while he served in the Royal Navy, his origins lay in Canada. He'll feature in greater detail in a future episode of the series addressing goings-on at Hope Bay. A day and a half after commencing construction, the new hut stood ready for occupants, receiving the name Wordy House, and a day later it received its first visitors in the form of a foreign naval vessel, though Kevin Walton doesn't know the nation or the name. It might be one of many, as Sir Vivian Fuchs notes six Argentine naval vessels visited Deception Island and a Chilean frigate and transport ship operated around the peninsula that austral summer. Crew of the Argentine vessel Ministro Escura removed all the window glass from the remaining buildings at Whalers Bay on Deception Island, also nabbing mattresses and a range of tools. The ship's commander promised the return of all materials, but likely these went over the gunnels as official inquiries began. 
with the buildings comprising Base B burnt to rubble and the whaling station buildings derelict and likely to rapidly deteriorate after the most recent Argentine removals. The FIDS ceased occupation with the close of the Austral summer of 1946-47. They would be back, though. Whaling interests were returning to the waters with Argentine and Russian vessels sighted by the FIDS. The Trapassi continued southward, and the episode ended. Affectionate shouting out to Jim Butler this episode. I listened to some Steve Malcolmus today, and the song Pink India reminded me to search for podcasts about the great game. Once again, internet searches returned nothing. If you know of a series that gives good account of Russian and British imperialism in Afghanistan, please get in touch with that good oil. Jim and I will thank you. Take care and appreciate your coffee. And in case Cara Santa Maria ever listens to this series, Cinematographic.